Lots of channels, nothing to watch, especially if you're searching for the truth. It's time to interrupt your regularly scheduled programs with something actually worth watching. Salem News Channel, straightforward, unfiltered, with in-depth insight and analysis from the greatest collection of conservative minds like Hugh Hewitt, Mike Gallagher, Sebastian Gorka, and more. Find truth. Watch 24-7 on SNC.TV and on Local Now, Channel 525. On a daily basis, we have to come to grips with the fact that there is a lot of bad news out there. There's a lot of bad news in the world. And with the rise of technology in broadcast media and especially the Internet, we hear more bad news that we otherwise would never know of. But bad news is not just from the outside world. It often comes from within the church. And all of the bad news that you can get, whether it's a church split, a disqualified pastor, or even a church going under, there is no news worse than hearing of someone who walks away from the faith. Apostate. Fallen away. Every one of us here can think of someone that once professed Christ as Lord and Savior, who now follows a different religion or rejects Christ's deity or claims to deny the existence of God altogether. They are apostate. Why does this happen? How does this happen? And as we begin chapter 4 of 1 Timothy this morning, God will answer those questions for us. And in so doing, will help us see what we can do from keep it, keeping it from happening even more. Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, as we look and unpack apostates, the fallen ones. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons, by means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. This morning, three dangers of apostasy. Three dangers of apostasy. The first danger is the reality or realization of apostasy. We find this in the beginning or the first half of verse 1. Again, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 4. I'll read that for you again. It says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith. Now here we have Paul introducing the topic of apostasy. And in so doing, he mentions that this was foretold by the Holy Spirit. Then he goes on to explain the when and the what of apostasy. Now the Spirit here refers to the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God, very God, He is a he, not an it. Now, Paul doesn't explain how or through what or whom the Spirit spoke about this topic, but we do know that he did. In fact, if you look at the verse, he says that the Spirit explicitly says, which means clearly, unmistakably. To put it another way, the Holy Spirit has said in no uncertain terms that in the last days, people will fall away from the faith. They will turn away from him. They will apostatize. By the way, apostatize is a common misspelling of the correct word apostatize, referring to an apostate. I can feel some of you trying to figure out how to get to your phones without anyone noticing to see if I'm correct. Well, despite Paul's lack of clarity on the means by which the Holy Spirit said these things, We know that he did speak, and we can boil it down to a few different scenarios. First of all, you have Jesus speaking of this in Matthew 24, 10 through 11. It says this, At that time many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will mislead many. In Mark 13, 22, Jesus says, False Christs and false prophets will arise. And will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. 
We also know that it was the Holy Spirit that superintended men to write the Scriptures. And the present tense that Paul uses indicates that it was the New Testament prophets, perhaps himself included, that he is referring to here when he says the Spirit explicitly says. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 13. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 13, and we'll see one of many passages where this topic is addressed. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Verse 4, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Do you not remember that while I was still with you, I was telling you these things? And you know what restrains him now so that in his time he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Then that lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end and by the appearance of his coming. That is, the one whose coming is in accord with the activity of Satan, with all power and signs and false wonders. And with all the deception of wickedness for those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence so that they will believe what is false in order that they all may be judged who did not believe the truth but took pleasure in wickedness. But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. These are days that are coming one day when the great apostasy, the great Antichrist comes, But this is the zenith of all that is happening even now. We know that what is coming is foreshadowed by those who are even now turning away from the faith. Now speaking of what the Spirit has said and when he has said it, it is impossible to determine exactly which prophecy Paul is referring to with the information that we have here. But it should be sufficient to know that he did say it and that Paul is going on to explain it. What he explains first is the timing. We find this in the phrase, in later times. Although we know from Scripture, including the passages we just read, that things will go from bad to worse as Christ's second coming gets closer, we also know from Scripture that later times are now. Later times were inaugurated when Jesus came to earth. These days are in fact characterized by the presence of the Holy Spirit, but will be fulfilled or consummated with the second coming of Jesus Christ. To be clear, we are in these later times. But more to the main point of the passage, what Paul continues is to explain what apostasy is. He describes it here as falling away from the faith. The reason it is called apostasy in the English language is because of a transliteration of the Greek word aphistomy, apostasy. A transliteration is taking the letters of one alphabet and converting them to the corresponding letters of another alphabet so that the words sound the same in both languages This would be in contrast to a translation, which is the carrying of the meaning of a word in one language to a word in a different language. The Greek word ephistomy and the English word apostasy is the term fall away that Paul uses here. That's exactly what apostasy is. Literally to desert or fall away. Here, to fall away or desert, as he says, the faith thus bringing us to our conventional understanding today of apostasy, which doesn't just mean to fall away from something, but to fall away from a particular religion or system of faith. The faith here is the faith, the Christian faith. 
and whom Paul is referring to are those who once claimed to be followers of Jesus and all that it entails, but have since denied the faith, rejected Christ as their Lord and Savior. Some, but not all, still claiming to believe in God, but not the specifics of the gospel or the beliefs of Christianity. And when it comes to God, we know, especially when we talk about evangelism, you are either for God or against Him. There is no ground prior to salvation, and there is no middle ground after salvation or after the claims of salvation. What I mean is this. Those who once claimed Christ as Lord but then at some point in their lives reject his lordship or deity, are in rebellion against God. There is no middle ground because they once went to church. There isn't, well, we knew him. He was such a faithful brother, or so we thought. And so maybe he's not really rebelling against God. There's just something else going on in his life. No. Apostasy shows and proves that they were never believers in the first place. Even while they were serving in the church, they were actively rebelling against God in their hearts. They were not true believers. And the reason we can say this is because of the clear testimony of Scripture that one cannot lose his or her salvation. Once saved, always saved. And since that is the case, those who apostatize were never saved in the first place. Although we hope that they will one day be. To be clear, this is not a turning away from a creed or denomination or even a specific doctrine. This is a complete turning away from the objective faith. The whole body of beliefs that Christians believe and follow. This can be externally evidenced by completely leaving the church or by leaving a Bible-believing church to another so-called church that does not believe or teach what Christians believe and teach. So what does this mean for you? In other words, since there are professing Christians, no doubt, even here at Grace, that are not true believers and will one day become apostate, what do we do? Let's start with three words. I'm going to summarize it with three simple words. In, up, and out. Specifically, look in, speak up, and call out. Let's start with the man in the mirror. Look in. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless, indeed, you fail the test? This test is to determine whether or not you are truly a Christian. And to pass the test is not by being a member of the church, it's not by being involved, by giving your time and money to the church. Having an emotional response to the gospel or gospel preaching is not how you pass the test. So what does it mean to look like or be a true believer? It starts, not ends, but starts with the gospel. If you're going to test yourselves... Do you truly believe in your heart that Christ died for your sins, was raised on the third day, and is your Lord? Not lip service, Lord, but truly committing to Him as the one who you now live for in obedience and submission in everything. We don't just say Jesus is Lord because that's what we're supposed to say and that's some sort of formula we heard in a tract or that it's what it says in Romans. There's meaning to that word. Do you do what he says? Not to earn his salvation, but because you are truly saved. Do you believe him? Do you believe in him? Do you obey him? And you say, I believe the gospel, but how do I know if I've made him my Lord? That's pretty simple, at least simple to gauge. 
with the very words that he himself gave us as the two greatest commandments, his words, not mine. Do you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? And secondly, do you love others as yourself? And love is defined by 1 Corinthians 13. Not defined by your parents, your favorite rom-com, or the world, as defined by God. Do you sacrificially love others even when that love hurts you or that love or the practice of that love will hurt other people? Do you truly love? You won't do this perfectly, but is it the theme of your life? Do you love? The second way to determine whether you truly are a believer is do you have the fruit of the Spirit? Those of you who have looked at this passage clearly, carefully, or have heard a sermon preached know very well that it is not the fruits of the Spirit. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is all one and together found in all believers. In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, you have the fruit of the Spirit, not some of them, all of them. It's all one fruit. Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 23, tell us what the fruit of the Spirit entails. And as we look through this, this is the test. This is the test of whether or not you are a true believer. Do you have these? Again, not perfectly, but are you striving for this? Does this characterize your life? Truly, meaningfully, not just well, I don't really do this, but, you know, that's my culture. That's the way I was raised. It's hard for me to do. You are a born-again believer. You will have all of these in some measure in your life. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And again, we will all sin, but there is grace. We will all fail. There is grace. There's forgiveness for the believer. But the overarching character of your life should be more of this fruit than the deeds of the flesh, which are found in the preceding verses. Look at Galatians five nineteen through 21. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things, and here's how we know, will not inherit the kingdom of God. That word practice such things is in the same tense that we find many commands in the scriptures that is habitually, continually. This is not that if you just lose your cool one time at that annoying coworker, you're not inheriting the kingdom of God and you're not a believer. That's not what he's saying. Again, is it the theme of your life? And when that happens, do you grieve? Not because you got caught, not because you look bad, not because your reputation is tarnished, but because God's is. Is it godly sorrow or is it worldly sorrow that leads to death? Now, aside from examining yourself, that's the in, there's the out. Or up, rather. We need to speak up. We need to speak up when we look at other Christians, professing Christians in the church, those who are in your life, even outside of this church, who claim the name of Jesus Christ. You do this by being actively involved in their lives and actively involved in their lives, not for fun and company, but for fellowship and sharpening. In other words, speak up for God. Speak the truth. If we are spending time as believers and not coming away greater and godlier, then we are not using our God-given relationships properly. You say, I don't want to jeopardize this relationship. I worked hard to get to know that person. We had our tough times, and it was hard work. And so we just keep it safe. 
We don't talk about serious things. We just have fun together. That person, if they are a believer or a professing believer, they are in your life because Jesus Christ bled and died so that you can have that relationship. Don't tell me that you put in too much work so that you can just have fun. These relationships are so that we can challenge one another, sharpen one another. Speaking the truth to others not only helps them grow if they are believers, but shows them what true Christianity looks like in case they aren't and are deceiving themselves. If they are not true believers and you're just hanging out and having fun, they're never going to be convicted by your relationship, by your life, by your words, because it looks the same. In fact, you may even solidify in their deceived minds that they are believers because, hey, believers don't talk about God. We just hang out and have fun. It strengthens their resolve and understanding as we speak truth to understand what the truth is and to avoid the doctrines of demons that we'll look at in a moment. Let's be done with just having fun with other Christians. Doing what the world does. Well, we refrain from the bad things. We don't get drunk. We don't do drugs. We don't do those sinful things. Okay. But are you doing the opposite? I'm not saying every single moment that you spend with another Christian should be quoting Scripture and asking what do you struggle with and how can I keep you accountable. But if there's none of that, there is a problem. Let's be done with guys night out, leave God at home. Road trip, leave Jesus in the bay. Bring him along and make him the center of your relationships and conversations. Speak up. Speak up about God. You say, well, you're talking about potential unbelievers. What if I know for sure they're all believers? All the more reason to talk about the Lord. They're the ones who want to hear it. They're the ones who are going to change and grow because of it. Your coworkers don't want to hear it. Some of your parents don't want to hear it. Why wouldn't you want to speak about the most important thing in your life with anyone who will hear? And you know Christians do. In, up, and finally out. Call out sin and disobedience. We need to be gracious. We need to be forgiving. But you can do that while still calling out sin. In fact, the forgiving part should be the easiest part. Because no matter how much you're offended, you understand that it's ultimately about what God wants and what is best for God's people, not about your reputation. Call out sin. In fact, one of the most unloving things you can do is allow habitual sin to be left unaddressed. That is so unloving, it is hateful, according to God. Another way to put this, be gracious, but not to the detriment of the very reason you are called to be gracious. We are called to be kind and gentle, loving and gracious because it reflects the character of God and thus glorifies Him. So if you avoid talking and confronting sin in the name of being gracious, then you aren't practicing grace in a way that honors God. Is there someone in your life whose sin and constant unchristian character you overlook and excuse? That you are afraid to admit to yourself and to that individual this person does not act like a Christian. I call them brother. I call them sister. They're neat there when I need them. I hear them pray. I hear they share in small group. But their lives, their heart, I don't think they're a Christian. Are you going to say something? Or are you going to keep excusing it? Oh, that's just the way he is. I've met his parents. I get it. Yeah, but I, I know deep down she doesn't mean that. Listen, if that's what they're like all the time, they mean that. That's who they are. 
Maybe, just maybe, just the way he is, or that's just her, is non-Christian. For the unbeliever who thinks they're saved, not addressing sin biblically will make them continue thinking they are saved until they fall away or face Christ himself when he does not let them enter into glory. How can you think that overlooking and making excuses for them all the way to Jesus himself saying, Behold, I never knew you, is being loving and gracious? We need to call out sin. And one of the benefits of practicing biblical fellowship is that there have been many professing believers who are confronted on their sin. And upon thinking of that sin and repenting of that sin, they for the first time ever actually repent unto salvation. Simply because someone said, Hey, you know that thing you did? I noticed you get angry a lot. Can I help you work on that? You need to honor the Lord through that. You need to repent of that. And even if you're wrong about their unbelief, what's going to happen? Think about how you would respond if someone said, Hey, I've been looking at your behavior, and I, I think you should test yourself to see if you're in the faith. If you are a true believer, you would be humbled and thankful and repentant. What have I done that would make you think that? And if someone digs in and says, how dare you? Maybe that's proof that you're right. In, up, and out. Look in. Test yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. Speak up, make your words saturated with Scripture and your heart filled with the desire to edify others with that Scripture and call out. As unkind as the world may call it and as unloved as the proud may feel when you do it, the kindest and most loving thing you can do for another professing Christian is to call out their sin. Apostasy exists. And it's not just the occasional politician or famous Christian musician that makes the news. It happens all the time and every, in everyday, even solid churches like ours. But why? Paul answers that question in our next danger of apostasy, the reason. The reason for apostasy. Speaking of those who fall away from the faith, The second half of verse 1 says, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Instead of the doctrines of God, apostates follow after false religions. Paul begins by saying they pay attention to them. This is more than just acknowledging, listening in, or agreeing. The word has the stronger sense of attaching oneself, clinging to something, following and devoting, and we understand that often it is not another religion, per se, or formal religion, it is the world, it is worldliness that they are following and devoting themselves to. And what we see that they devote themselves to or what they attach to are, look at Paul's words, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Deceitful spirits stands in contrast to the Holy Spirit. These are evil spirits. They are demons. Deceitful means deceptive, deceiving, but also leading astray and seducing. What these spirits teach are doctrines of demons, literally the teachings of demons. And I want to make something very clear. Do not let Paul's vocabulary fool you here. He is not just talking about the occult or strange, obscure cults. This is any false religion, not just religions that invoke the name of Satan or witchcraft. Demons are behind every false religion, including those that are major religions in our world and in our country, 
including those that profess Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, including those that use the very Bibles that are on your laps this morning. Is any religious teaching that goes against the true God and His Word are doctrines of demons. They are sometimes taught by those who even say things like, I rebuke you, Satan, and practice exorcisms. In other words, many of the individuals who teach demonic doctrines fully believe in their hearts that they are doing the Lord's work in a battle against demons when in reality they are preaching and teaching the demonic. They are intelligent beings after all, the demons. How much more strategic can you be than to actually have people on your side the whole while thinking that they're against you. This is what the demons do. We see this even with the Pharisees' accusation against Jesus. You do this in the name of Beelzebub. Who are these demons, these deceitful spirits? They are the supernatural fallen angels who work through individuals and false religions and worldly philosophies. They are intelligent beings who were once worshipers of God, who joined Satan in his fall, and now make up the army that stands as the enemy of God. Neither they nor the evil they espouse are contagious. I just want to make that clear. This is not some sort of Hollywood zombie infection where if touched or bitten, you become one of them and lose your faith. I think sometimes we think that way when it comes to certain things like Halloween or certain movies. Paul is talking about those who have been deceived, yes, but have chosen to hold these false teachings rather than reject them, which every person has the opportunity to do. It's not because of some sick, uh, slick salesman or manipulative evangelist, but ultimately because of demons and their individual choice to follow them. Again, this is not some sort of overtly satanic ritual, sacrificing virgins, drinking blood. We know those do exist and historically have existed, but these are not the norm. In other words, Paul is not saying that those in Ephesus who left the church started sacrificing humans, drinking goat's blood, Nor is this only talking about things like Jim Jones or the Heaven's Gate cult. Again, those types of things will continue to exist. But what I believe we need to be most alert to are the less obvious propagators of false and thus demonic religion. And we need to understand that all religions outside of biblical Christianity are demonic. When I was in high school and youth group, a big trend in the late 80s and early 90s was exposing the supposed satanic subliminal messages in certain rock and roll songs. People even went so far as to play records backwards and show you how the song is saying things that are demonic in nature. There's that famous Beatles song, I can't remember what it is, which says John is dead or something like that, saying, oh, see, they were predicting that they were going to kill one of the members of the Beatles. I mean, it's just, it's nonsense. And the crazy thing is, is they would look at that and say, see, there's some subliminal message that's demonic, and then go listen to all the popular secular artists that are promoting promiscuity and those types of things. Today, Some are overly concerned about hidden themes in movies or satanic agendas of certain retail stores, all the while ignoring their own sin and the sin of other Christians, all the while refusing to preach the gospel or correct the wayward believer. We need to stop looking for Satan in every nook and cranny of American culture and start focusing on the Bible. Focus on the Bible. Whether or not someone shops at Target does not determine if they are a Christian. Hobby Lobby, Halloween, Harry Potter, secular music. These do not prove if someone is a Christian or not. We use a uh, church software that's online. 
and I check it every, you know, it has all of our, everyone's details, who's a member, who's not, and it tracks the giving. And on the homepage, there's just this big window that tells you how much was given to the church that week. I think it was on Wednesday. I just opened up the church software and I saw that the amount given this past week ended in 666. Ooh, give the money back. And people think this way, right? And I get it, right? It's hard not to notice that number. But if you happen to get a new car and the DMV sends your license plate with the number 666, it doesn't mean that your car's cursed, <laughs> that it's going to break down. The number refers to an individual that is to come that we recently read about. Yes, evil, demonic, but the number itself doesn't mean anything. Do any of you find it silly that hotels take off the number 13 off of their elevators? Sir, if you're staying on floor 14, you never mind. <laughs> it's crazy. And as Christians, we get so caught up in those things that we miss what is truly the doctrine of demons. In fact, one could make a case that our overemphasis on what is evil in secular society is one of the devil's tricks to distract us from what really matters. When it comes to the possible apostate, we need to stop thinking someone is a Christian simply because they're a good person or they attend a church. They can quote the Bible when in reality what they are quoting and believing are doctrines of demons. Catholics, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, doctrines of demons. Jesus was just a prophet. He was a good man, just a solid teacher, doctrines of demons. Jesus died but was not raised, doctrines of demons. Jesus is not God, was created at his birth or wasn't fully human, doctrines of demons. And I love Jesus Christ, who is my Lord and Savior, but I'm bitter, angry, and refuse to forgive. It's not those people who are being deceived by, that, by the evil spirits, but the true Christians who accept that person as a true believer. We need to be careful. We call a spade a spade. Are there evil and gross things in movies? Of course. Are there things that our favorite retail stores and coffee chains are doing that we don't agree with? Absolutely. Does that mean that that's what we focus on? Hey, can I talk to the owner? I've been coming to your Chinese restaurant for years, but I'm telling you right now, if you don't get rid of that little Buddha statue and the incense, I'm never coming back here. Enjoy the food. Then call the owner and preach the gospel. Talk about what would Jesus do. He would do that. And by the way, little tip, it may not be visible, but every Chinese restaurant you've ever been to has a Buddha somewhere. <laughs> Time to break out the cookbook, I guess, for some of you. Now we know the reason for apostasy. People are paying attention to the deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. But how did this come about? Not how someone becomes apostate. We've just seen that. But how does this individual come to know these doctrines in the first place? And this brings us to our third and final danger of apostasy, the root of apostasy. We've seen the realization of apostasy, the reason for apostasy, and now the root of apostasy. We'll see this in verse 2. By means of the hypocrisy of liars, seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The people Paul refers to here are the agents of the false doctrines that lead to apostasy. It becomes abundantly clear that these things are not brought to the attention of professing believers by the demons themselves. After all, they are intelligent beings, so it would make the most sense to disguise their evil activity in the form of another human being. And just as God uses men and women like you and I, so does the devil. 
The difference being that which is good delivered by the holy redeemed versus that which is deceptive and demonic delivered by the worldly unredeemed. But these are not just any run-of-the-mill non-Christians. These are hypocritical liars who can only do and say what they do and say because their consciences have been seared beyond recognition. The main mediators of this filth, Paul says, are hypocritical liars. Hypocrisy was a word used of actors in the Greek stage who wore a mask, play-acting and deceiving. If you're familiar with the study of acting or theater, you know that the official symbol for acting is two masks, one laughing, the other crying. Comedy and tragedy, happy and sad. The reason for this is that in Paul's day, before close-ups, cameras, and elaborate prosthetics, people would hold a mask in front of their face for the people who are standing far, sitting far up in that amphitheater to indicate what character they were playing, the good guy or the bad guy. And this was, of course, to hide their own face and tell the audience that no matter what the actor behind the mask was or felt, the mask was the persona you were to believe and accept despite what was truly in their heart. Despite the fact that you may have known that actor and they were grieving over their mother who just died, but they were playing the happy one, you don't see what that actor feels. You see the mask to enjoy the play. And you can see how that evolved into how we understand hypocrisy in religions or in a religious sense today. Putting on an outward show of holiness and righteousness while behind the mask is deception and unrighteousness. To put it simply... They are pretending to be something that they are not. And in this context, they're pretending to be those who have the way to God and the means to honor Him, when in reality their message drives people even further from God than they already are. And as far as apostasy from the faith goes, there are people who make those who attend church believe that there is something better than what the Christian church is teaching, whether it's personal, like self-fulfillment, or tangible way to honor God, also known as legalism, or even a better God or a less demanding God. And what we will see next week is that this mask of holiness is made up of abstinence from things that are in reality blessings from God that we should partake in, namely marriage and food. Paul goes on in our verse this morning to say that they are liars. They're not telling the truth, which is an absolute must to convince someone to leave a commitment to God. And the rest of the verse explains what needs to happen within these false teachers in order to do what they do. They have to be seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. The word seared in Paul's day, was used as a medical term for a procedure. And understand their understanding of medicine and the human body was very different. So rather than going in and fixing something, they would take a hot iron and basically kill that limb or whatever it was to render it inactive. And that's the picture we have here, but not of a literal iron and not a physical deadening but a moral and intellectual deadening of the conscience. And just as a cauterized nerve can no longer decipher between pain and pleasure, so the cauterized conscience can no longer decipher between right and wrong. And as far as these false teachers are concerned, their consciences, the God-given aspect of humanity that serves as the moral compass, has been destroyed. You go hiking with a compass, it's very helpful. Go hiking with a compass that's been smashed over and over with a hammer, not so much. Might as well throw it away and lighten your load because it's useless. And we know that the conscience doesn't just get like this at once. You don't overnight become immoral. It happens over time. Smash the compass and you may crack the glass, but it still works. It's hard to see, a little unclear, 
smash it again and the back may be dented and the numbers are scratched off, still works. But maybe it takes a little fidgeting, takes some time to find true north. Smash it yet again and the bent needle makes it so that it needs to be tapped a few times before pointing in the right direction. And even then, you trust it, but you can't be sure if it's right. Over and over again and little by little, but sure enough, the compass will be useless. And so it is with the conscience. It goes from bad to worse. Little by little, you change your morality so that you don't realize how bad it is. It's like the frog in the kettle. You ever heard this analogy? You throw a, a frog, supposedly, in a boiling pot of water, it will try to jump right out. But you put it in a pot of water that is the same temperature of the swamp that it came from and then put that burner on simmer or low, it will never jump out as it slowly gets warmer and warmer and its body adapts and pretty soon it's frog legs for dinner. It's dead. That's what happens with our conscience. It doesn't just happen all at once. If your conscience is clear and sensitive and someone drops you in a strip club, you're going to flee. But you start with that little glance at work. And looking at things too long on your phone, ads. Then it gets to things that you pay for. And then more and more, and pretty soon, what was once unimaginable to you, you're standing right there in the middle of it. That's the conscience. When the false teacher is so far gone that he is indeed a false teacher, he doesn't even know what's happening. He doesn't even know how he got there. And it has been suggested that the phrase seared as with a branding iron is talking about a seal or a brand like a farmer would burn into the hairs of his livestock. And in this case, they say that the brand that is seared onto the conscience of the false teacher indicates that he now belongs to Satan. He has this burnt seal of Satan on his conscience, on his brain. That is not what Paul is saying here. The teaching of the Bible as a whole shows us that Paul is not referring to that, but to the desensitizing of the conscience. But outside of this word exegetically, it's still true. The false teachers belong to Satan. We have the cross of Christ branded upon our hearts, the Holy Spirit. They have the mark of Satan. And just as by teaching the doctrines of the apostles, we show that we belong to their God, by teaching the doctrines of demons, they show they belong to their God. We need to pray for the salvation of false teachers. We need to pray also that they would stop. God would stop them. And if it's not through their salvation, then we can pray, Lord, through any other means. These people are by no means innocent. Their followers may be, the teachers are not. They have chosen for whatever reason to silence their consciences time and time again to the point of becoming what they are, to the point of what is happening in Ephesus, not just getting on TV or starting their own little church or cult, but going into the Christian cult and trying to pull people out. And whether that silencing is to avoid hard work or to pursue riches, the end result is that they know their consciences are warped, which is in part why they so passionately seek to recruit others. Misery loves company, and so does evil. The clearest example that we have of such men are the Jewish leaders, specifically the Pharisees, that Jesus called hypocrites over and over again. Men who were raised from birth to love and serve Yahweh, but began for whatever reason to heap burdens and legalism on the shoulders of God's people, even creating falsities and cheating scales so that they can make a lot of money as people are going into worship, saying that sacrifice is no good, that sacrifice is no good, buy one of ours at five times the price. 
oh, you can't use the Roman money here. You've got to buy a temple, temple coin. The exchange rate was exorbitant. What happened? Claiming to represent God, they were actually teaching the doctrines of demons by removing every heart attitude that God required of the Jews through the slavish obedience to the Mosaic and rabbinic law. They took what was good, as many Christian cults and false religions do, taking the Bible and then adding, adding, adding the words of people that they claim were prophets or angels, adding their own words, adding their own rules, and turning God's word into doctrines of demons. And in the end, whether the Pharisees then or the false teachers today, they're human agents moved by evil spirits and marked by hypocrisy. And as much as that grieves us, it brings us full circle to the main point which grieves us even more. There are those who sit among us, who one day will follow them. So pray, speak up, examine your own heart, and make your Christian life a Christian life. The Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will fall away from the faith paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful for the clarity of your word. We're thankful that no one needs to add to it, no one can add to it, no one should add to it. Whether it's a voice someone claims to hear in their dream, or someone who wants to add to the Scriptures. We know that your Scriptures are completed. They are the Holy Word of God. They are all that you have said and all that we need to have said. We pray for the false teachers in our world, the ones that even think that they're doing something good because they bring a Bible to the pulpit and they have memory verses for their kids but they teach a Christianity that is foreign to the Scriptures. I pray for their repentance. I pray for their salvation if they're not saved. I pray that you would protect us as a church from the false teachers that may not physically enter our building, but do so through social media, through texts, through coworkers, through family members, through a guy knocking on our doors. Help us to be so passionate about your word and to know it so well that we are not swayed by these false teachers, but in fact they are swayed by us. If there are any here that are not believers, I pray that you would reveal that to them in their hearts. Help those of us who have an inkling, who are telling ourselves to keep quiet so as to not make waves and are afraid to speak up. May you end all of that nonsense, Lord. Because their salvation and especially your glory are so much more important than the potential of avoiding hurt feelings or reputation. Use us to that end, ultimately for your glory, Lord. And prepare us now to take the Lord's table. In Jesus' name.